God, thank you uh, so much um, for the, the great privilege it is to, um, to open your word. Um, I'm just continually astounded by the fact that we have a God who uh, continues to speak to us. A God who has not left us as orphans, but who has given us his spirit, um, who dwells within us. And so, Father, we ask that that spirit would be at work in us this morning, that as we look at this text, a familiar story, God, it would not fall on deaf ears, but that this would be a, a holy moment, that this would be a time where you speak to us and that your spirit is at work turning our eyes ever more to see Christ more clearly in this passage and in every other passage of Scripture. Thank you, God, for the great privilege it is to open your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of, of Mark. Last Sunday was a, a great uh, Sunday celebrating our five-year uh, birthday, five years of ministry here in Spencer. And, and uh, one of the consistent themes that was mentioned last week uh, that we heard from a number of different people about was uh, as our church's commitment to to God's Word, and one of the, the ways that that shows itself on Sunday mornings uh, is by us working through entire books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, until we, uh, until we get to the end of that book. And this morning, we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark. It's been a couple weeks uh, since we've been in Mark. Uh, we've been in Mark since last fall. And this morning we're in Mark chapter 6, and this story is a, a well-known story. Uh, it's the story of Jesus walking on the water, and I don't know about you, uh, but one of the dangers that I have experienced, at least as I look at texts like this, uh, when it's a well-known story, one of the dangers I ha- have, have felt or tempted toward is to adopt this mindset that, that simply just says, hey, you know what, I already know the point of this story, and I can kind of put it on, on autopilot and check out. And one of the things that I'm so thankful about studying this text and going through it this morning is that uh, it, this past week, uh, as I paused and, and, and really just dove into this text, I realized this, this is just such a deep passage. It's a powerful passage. In fact, I think this passage is the clearest in all of the gospel of Mark about who Jesus is. Remember how Mark starts his gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He tells us what his purpose is as he starts his gospel. He says this, This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So everything that Mark is writing in this gospel is focused on this claim. Mark is writing to convince those who do not believe or those who are beginning to to doubt in their own hearts that Jesus is the Son of God. And his gospel breaks apart nicely into two very distinct, very clear sections. The first half, Mark chapter 1 through chapter 8, asks this question, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And story after story after story in that section of Mark answers that question. And that answer, as we're going to see this morning, is very clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. So that's the first half of the Gospel of Mark, asking this question, who is Jesus? And then the second half, he builds on that question in, verses, or in chapters 9 through 16, asking this question, what does that mean? Who is Jesus, and now what does it mean that he is the Son of God? 
And there's so many uh, uh, questions and so much confusion originates around that second question during Jesus' ministry. You see, many people are, are willing to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. They are willing to recognize that Jesus is the one who comes to deliver them, comes to establish God's kingdom. Moments before this text that we're going to look at, we see this moment where everyone in the crowd who experiences miraculous feeding of the 5,000 actually wants to make him their king. But they don't realize that the way that Jesus brings God's kingdom is not through the roar of the crowds, but instead it's through the road to the cross. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up uh, to our text this morning, Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verse, verses 45 through 56. This is actually two different stories, uh, but they both talk about, the similar, uh, th- about similar things and communicate similar themes. And so we're going to spend the majority of our time in the first story, this story of Jesus walking on the water, and that's found in verses 45 through 52. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 45. Says this, immediately he, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass by them, but when, he, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But he immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This text this morning comes immediately on the heels of our previous text, this uh, feeding of the 5,000, as I just alluded to earlier. Uh, we looked at that a couple weeks ago on Palm Sunday. Notice how, th- how these two texts are, are so closely connected. Verses 51 and 52, the end of this passage, shows that the, the key to understanding this story is to also first understand the feeding of the 5,000. Picking up halfway through verse 51. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So the the key to understanding this passage relies on first understanding what God is trying to teach us in the feeding of the 5,000. So what is the feeding of the 5,000 about? What does it mean that the disciples did not understand the loaves? The feeding of the 5,000 in Mark uh, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, the, the previous passage, is more than just this incredible miracle. It's this moment where where Jesus is testing his disciples' faith. The disciples have just returned from from doing ministry in Galilee as Jesus' representatives, verse 30 of chapter 6. And after a day of teaching to the crowds, Jesus challenges his disciples to feed the crowd. And the disciples, if you're familiar with that story, they, they basically laugh and say, hey, there's no way that we can do that. 
And so Jesus gathers this food together. He prays over it just like you or I would pray before a meal. And then he has the disciples pass out the food. And that's important. The disciples are the ones who are passing out the food. They're the ones who are on the, the front lines of this miracle. They're the ones who are handing out this food to thousands of people. They are the ones who are seeing firsthand time and time and time and time again that the food never disappears Jesus has used them as his representatives when he sends them throughout Galilee, and now he uses them as his representatives in this miracle. And at the end of this miracle, you'll notice that that Jesus tells them to gather up what's left over. He sends these disciples back out to collect the, the leftovers, and each of them goes out with a very specific basket. The the word that's used here in Greek to refer to this basket is like a lunchbox. It's a a very personal-sized basket. You can't fit more than just one person's food in that basket. And he sends them all out with these small lunchboxes to collect the leftovers, and each of them comes back with a full basket. Not a half-full basket. Not a a basket and a half. No more, no less. A, A full basket. What is Jesus trying to teach them here? Well, Jesus is is trying to teach them through this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, not not that he can can do all these things for the crowds. He's, He's specifically talking to the disciples. He's trying to instill this confidence in them that Jesus is not just the great shepherd, but he is their great shepherd. That Jesus is the one who feeds his people just like God fed his people in the wilderness in the book of Exodus thousands of years ago. But more importantly, by sending them out with these small personalized sized baskets to gather the leftovers and each of them just gathering one of these baskets is a statement. He's saying, I am your shepherd. I will always take care of you I will always provide for you. I may ask the impossible of you. I just did. I asked the impossible of you. But when your faith is fixed on me, I will do things that you could never imagine. Just imagine for for a second that you are one of these disciples here. This is a very hands-on miracle, as I, I already mentioned. They're the ones who are beginning to, to hand out all of this food. And can you imagine how this starts? They're, they're each given a, a portion of this meal, and Jesus says, and go feed all of these thousands of people. As they probably walk out a little bit timid, saying, you know, what on earth is Jesus asking me to do here? Maybe they start to grumble and say, well, Jesus is setting me up for failure. Jesus is, is going to get me laughed at. This is going to get me embarrassed. But then to their amazement, they feed the first groups of 50, which would have been a miracle all in its own, and they still have le- leftover food. And so they move on with amazement to this next group of 50 or 100, and the same thing happens. And then they move on, and it happens again, 
and again and again and again. And then all of a sudden they begin to to build confidence and these murmurs begin to spread throughout the entire crowd ahead of them. And people are saying, well, this is amazing. We're all going to get to eat our our fill. We're all going to be satisfied when all all that we started with were just five loaves of bread and and two fish. And then the disciples, they get to the the last fourth of the crowd. And I just imagine they're feeling like rock stars, right? They're, They're walking through the crowd. They're laughing. They're tossing food left and right. Hey, you want some food? All right, here you go. You know, they, they're just looking, like, look at how, how God is using us. And they walk back to Jesus, and they're on cloud nine. They're feeling like these conquering heroes. And then Jesus sends them back out to, to gather the leftovers, and they do that, and then our text picks up. And what does Jesus do? Well, let's pick up in verse 45 again. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So what does Jesus do when they return with the leftovers here? He says, get in the boat right now. Leave. Go to Bethsaida. I will meet you there. The word made is not a request. He's not saying, hey guys, when you're ready, go ahead and leave. No, he's demanding of them. There's no room for negotiating with Jesus in this moment. He says, get in the boat right now. Leave right now. Leave the crowd. Go to Bethsaida. I will meet you there. Now, why on earth is there this very abrupt end to this passage? Well, Jesus gives us uh, the answer, or excuse me, John gives us the answer in his account of this miracle. John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus sends his disciples off and he dismisses the crowd because he can see where things are headed. This crowd is absolutely floored. They're absolutely amazed at what Jesus has done. They're ready to to take him and force him to become their king. And he knows that his disciples are susceptible to that type of thinking. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, they actually get into this very heated argument about who is going to be Jesus' right-hand man when he establishes his kingdom in full. And so he sends them packing. He says, get out of here right now before things go even worse for you. And then Jesus sticks around and he dismisses the crowd. This crowd isn't going to leave on their own. Jesus wants to make very clear to everyone, but no one's paying attention, that this miracle is not about Jesus running for a political office. This isn't a political platform that he's going to start campaigning on. This is a miracle about he will provide for his people. Now, notice what Jesus does after he forces his disciples to leave and after he dismisses this crowd. What does he do? He goes up onto this mountain and he begins to pray. Mark only mentions three prayers in his entire gospel, only, only three times where Jesus goes and prays in the gospel of Mark. And so when he does mention Jesus is praying, it's probably important for us to pause and ask the question, why? What is, what is Jesus praying about? This is a, an important moment here when Jesus is praying. So what is this thread that runs through each of the prayers that Jesus offers in the gospel of Mark? The first time Jesus prays in Mark, uh, 
first time it's recorded in Mark that Jesus prays is this day after his first day of public ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Jesus, on that first day of public ministry, he's, he's met by crowds, he's met by popularity. And so what does he do? He doesn't embrace that popularity. Instead, he decides to go into the wilderness. He goes to the very same place where he battled with Satan in, earlier in Mark chapter 1. And just like in his battle with Satan, this battle, this temptation is facing him. Jesus prays that he would not succumb to the temptation to forego the cross and embrace the the crowds. Remember Mark's message. The kingdom does not come through the roar of the crowds, but it comes through the road to the cross. And Jesus, Jesus himself has to go into solitude. He has to go into prayer in order to remind himself of that. And so it goes off in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 6, we see the second prayer of Jesus. This time where Jesus goes off to pray, again goes to the wilderness in order to pray. Here, the context of Jesus' prayer, very similar to that which we saw in Mark chapter 1. Jesus is tempted to forego the cross in order to accept the roar of this crowd. And so he retreats again to the wilderness. He goes to this mountain and he begins to pray that he would be able to overcome temptation and that he would remain this perfectly obedient son. And then the last time it is mentioned is in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. What does he pray? And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, here's Jesus standing hours before the cross, and he is not at all looking forward to it. He is begging God to find a different way, and yet he says, not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. Do not let me succumb to the temptation to avoid this cross. I don't want to do this, but more than that, I want to remain your perfectly obedient son. And so here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is praying that he would remain faithful to God. And there's, I think, a lot that we can learn from that. If Jesus has to pray in moments like this, if Jesus has to pray to remain faithful, if Jesus has to pray to remain obedient in his life, how much more should you and me? But that's not the main focus here of this passage. Jesus goes off to pray, and while that is happening, his disciples are on the lake and they're headed west toward Bethsaida. And these three verses, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 47, all they really do, they're just setting the stage for the text. That's what the summary in verse 47 is all about. It says, and when evening came, Jesus is on land, and the disciples are in the boat. And then we see the meat of this text. And in the meat of this text, we see that there are really two ways that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. Two ways that he he reveals himself to his disciples and how his disciples respond to him. So let's go ahead and look at these. The first way Jesus reveals himself to his disciples is in verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. We'll pause right there. 
You see, Jesus has been praying for, for some time, and he starts in the evening. He starts somewhere around 6 to 9 p.m., and, then, and now it's the fourth watch of the night, the Roman way of referring to the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So he's been praying for quite a while, and over the course of those several hours of prayer, things begin to turn south for Jesus' disciples. This wind picks up on the water, and their progress begins to suffer. Mark actually tells us that every single inch of progress that they make is painfully earned because they are attempting to sail into the wind. And again, I want you to just put yourself into the the place of the apostles or the disciples here. You were on cloud nine when Jesus used you to feed thousands. And then suddenly, without explanation, he says, get in the boat, leave right now. So you listen, and you get in the boat, and what starts as this easy trip across the lake suddenly becomes this battle against the wind. And you begin to wonder, well, why on earth would Jesus make us do this? Where, where is Jesus after all? And your thoughts begin to devolve and say, why would Jesus do this to me? Jesus surely knew that this wind was coming. Why is it that he chose to walk to Bethsaida, and yet he's making us go through this storm, this difficulty, Doesn't Jesus care? And where is Jesus in this moment? Well, Mark tells us at the beginning of verse 48. Beginning of verse 48 starts by saying, he saw them. He saw them. You see, he saw their struggle against the wind. He saw it the moment that struggle Began. And who knows how long he chose to remain in prayer rather than going to join them, rather than immediately coming to their aid. Jesus saw them. There wasn't a moment where they weren't out of his vision, or where, where, they, weren't out, where they were a part of his vision. They can't see him, but Jesus can always see them. And at some point, Jesus decides that it's time for him to join them. But rather than meeting them in Bethsaida, Jesus decides to change his plans. He decides to meet them on the water. And so he does the impossible. He, he decides to walk on water. And I don't want you to let the, the familiarity of this story drown out what is taking place in this moment, the impossibility of this moment. Uh, an object lesson. Go home. If you have a bathtub, fill your bathtub and then try to step into it with every intention of of walking or standing on that water, and let me know how it goes, all right? Don't let the the familiarity of this moment drown out the impossibility of this moment. Jesus does what you and I could never do. He steps out onto the water, and then rather than dropping like a rock to the bottom of the sea, he walks. He walks just like we would on land. And many people find this uh, to be the most fantastical, the most unbelievable of Jesus' miracles uh, because it's easily disproved from our own experiences, right? Obviously, if you went home and you tried that thing in your bathtub, uh, it would not go the same way as it does for Jesus here. You would not be able to walk on water. We all have experience with water, and we know that it does not work that way. And so many people will look at this story and say, well, what Jesus actually did is he found a sandbar, And he decided to walk out on it, and it was just very convenient that it it intersected where his disciples were. Or Jesus found all of these rocks, and he just hopped from rock to rock to rock to rock until he got out to 
his disciples. It's too far-fetched for us to believe that Jesus actually was able to walk on water. And yet, if we spend all of our time arguing about the impossibility of this moment, we are going to completely miss what Mark is trying to say. And in fact, what I think is even more impossible in this moment, more impossible than Jesus being able to walk on water. Because if Jesus can walk on water, then what does that say about him? If Jesus can walk on water, what does that say about who he is? Who alone in the Bible and all of creation has control over the water at the beginning of creation? Who who separates it and and forms it? Who alone in, in all of creation controls the waters of the flood and forces them to recede? Who alone in in all of creation has control over the Red Sea and parted it so the Israelites could walk through on dry land as they left Egypt? Who alone in all of creation is able to split the Jordan River so that the Israelites can walk through on dry land on their way into the promised land? Consider the words of Job, Job chapter 9. He alone stretched out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. Job here, writing thousands of years before Jesus, says that there is only one being in all of creation who is able to walk on water, the Lord God himself. And what does Mark say? Well, Mark says, hey, I I agree with that. Only God can walk on water, but at the same time, the disciples saw Jesus walk on water. So what does that mean about who Jesus is? Who does that make Jesus? Remember this question here in the first half of the Gospel of Mark. Who is this Jesus? And pause, consider that question. Let it hang there for a moment. If only God can walk on water. And Jesus walks on water. What does that make Jesus? This is the logic that Mark is trying to import here in this moment. This connection between these two verses, Job and Mark, is not something that's just coincidental. Mark uses the exact same language, the exact same words, the exact same phrases that Job does, showing that Mark has Job in mind when he writes what Jesus does. Like I said, this is the most miraculous claim of this entire passage. It's not that Jesus walked on water, but what that might mean if Jesus actually walked on water, what that has to mean about who Jesus is. It's God himself. But that's not the only thing that Jesus does. Notice verse 48 again, how the verse ends. It says this, he meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. What on earth does that mean? What on earth does it mean? Is Jesus just playing games here with his disciples? Is he taunting them? It's the middle of the night and he decides to go out for a little stroll and, oh, hey guys, how's it going? You know, rowing into this wind must be really, really hard. You guys should try walking. Just kidding, don't, don't actually do that. You'll, you'll drown. Don't, don't do that. I, I can do that, but you can't. I'll see you when we get to Bethsaida. Is that what Jesus is doing? That's, that's how it reads. In fact, when I was in high school and, and college, um, I actually thought this phrase was proof that God has a sense of humor. 
Because there's the only way to explain this, right? That, that God has this sense of humor because he was playing games with his disciples. How, how else can we possibly make sense of what Jesus is doing here? And yet, I, I still believe that God has a sense of humor, but this passage does not speak to that. That actually completely misses the, the power of what Jesus is doing here. So what is this passage saying? Well, in the Old Testament, there are a number of times where God decides to reveal himself to his people. And as he's revealing, to him, uh, revealing himself to his people, in those moments, oftentimes God will say something like, hey, I cannot reveal myself to you. I can't show myself to you fully because if you see me fully, you will die. I am so holy. I am so glorious. I am so powerful. If you experience the weight of my glory, you will die. And so here's what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do, instead of, instead of coming face to face with you, I'm going to pass by you. And then you can just catch a little glimpse of my glory. But even that glimpse will prove to you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, how incredibly powerful, how incredibly glorious, how incredibly awesome I am. We read from Job 9 earlier. Consider just a few verses later in Job 9. Behold, God passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. See any parallels there between Job saying, I don't perceive God walking on water and the disciples? Or consider God's words to Elijah in 1 Kings. And God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And, before, or, and behold, the Lord passed by. Or God's word to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him. We see throughout the Old Testament, when God wants to reveal himself to people, oftentimes he will pass by them to show them his glory. So first, Jesus does what only God can do. He walks on water. And then he decides, hey, I'm going to make this even clearer for you. In case you missed that one, I'm going to show you who I am by doing what only God does in the Old Testament. This is the first revelation that Jesus makes to his disciples in this passage. And it says, Jesus reveals himself as God to his disciples through his works. Jesus reveals himself as God to his disciples through his works. Jesus' disciples witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't get what it said about who he was. And so Jesus decides he's going to try again. He's going to make it even clearer to them about who he is, God himself. There's no other answer according to this passage. So is that what his, is that what his disciples conclude? They see Jesus walking on the water and say, hey, only God can do that, so that must be God. They say, hey, Jesus is about to pass by us, and, and that's what God does in the Old Testament when he's going to reveal himself to his people, so that Jesus must be God. Well, no, that's not at all what they conclude. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for all, they all saw him and were terrified. Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, and they respond with terror. They have no idea who Jesus is. They miss the richness. They miss the incredible beauty behind this miracle, and they instead assume the worst. They're terrified. They jump to these crazy conclusions. They claim that instead of being God, it is a ghost. Jesus has revealed himself as God, and yet the disciples do not understand. Why is that? Well, Mark explains later in the text. Let's keep going, and we'll get to that here soon. 
That brings us to our second way that Jesus reveals himself in this passage, starting in verse 50. It says this, halfway through. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus speaks to his disciples. He is patient. He is compassionate with them. He calms them down and says, hey, be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. And in between those two statements, be encouraged and don't be afraid, we have our second revelation of who Jesus is. The text tells us, my English translation says, it is I. Literally in Greek, what Jesus says is, I am. Simply what Jesus is saying, he says, be encouraged, I am, fear not. Now, how is this a revelation of who Jesus is? The book of Exodus records this conversation between God and Moses, where Moses asks God for his real name, and how does God respond? He responds by saying this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So here's Jesus, right on the heels of doing what only God can do, saying, okay, you didn't get it, that's fine. Don't be afraid, be encouraged, but do you have any idea who I am? I am. I am. My name is the Lord. I am. A few moments ago, we read from Exodus chapter 34, when God passes by uh, Moses. Let's read the the rest of this passage and catch the weight of, of what Jesus means here. When he says, I am, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, or literally, I am, I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Love for a thousand generations and justice for those who choose not to follow him. All of that, that mercy, that compassion, that justice, that love is in view here when Jesus declares, fear not, I am. What's the second way that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples? Jesus reveals himself as God to his disciples through his words. He reveals himself through his words. He makes this claim that is blasphemy and deserves death unless it's true. And if it is true, if Jesus is telling the truth here, then he deserves every single fiber of our being, every shred of our lives. He deserves to be the Lord and the master over every single corner of our lives. Is that how the disciples respond? No, not at all. Verse 51. And Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For... They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Amazement, yes, but nothing more. They stop there with amazement. There's no faith. There's no radical obedience. There's no confession of who Jesus is here. There's just simple dumbfoundedness. 
They can't, uh, they can't believe what they just saw. And Jesus climbs into the boat with them, and the wind and the waves come to an end, and the disciples, just like they didn't understand the feeding of the 5,000, this, this moment that's supposed to instill confidence first in, in who God is as their great shepherd, shepherd and, and second, this moment that, that is a declaration from Jesus that, that this shepherd will always take care of them, will always provide for them, will always, even in the moments where he asks for radical faith, radical obedience, will always be with them. Because they didn't understand that, they won't understand who Jesus declares who he is through his words and through his actions. So what can we learn from this text? I think the, the key to understanding this passage is to simply understand this incredible, impossible juxtaposition that exists in Jesus. It's the best news possible. Jesus is the God of all creation, and yet at the same time, he still deeply cares for his people. He still deeply cares for his people. Jesus is God himself, and yet he cares enough for his disciples to keep an eye on them in the midst of the storm, even though he's far off while he prays, even though they're in the midst of exhaustion. He goes to meet them, and he climbs into their boat, and he's with them in the midst of the trial. You see, I think the most unbelievable, most impossible miracle in this passage is not that Jesus actually walks on water, as impossible as that is for us. No, the most impossible part of this text is simply that Jesus might actually be everything he claims to be. He claims to be this God who sees my faults, who sees my failures, he sees all my disobedience, all my flippant disregard for him, all my hardness of heart, all the times where I have been more interested in trinkets, more interested in temporary pleasures and gains. He sees all of that and yet still deeply cares for and loves me anyway. That is the miracle of this text. And so as we close, just consider two implications. Two implications from this very uh, popular, uh, common story. First, it's a warning against a hard heart. But unlike past warnings against hard hearts that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, this isn't just for those who don't really buy into the church thing. This isn't just for those who are, are on the outside. This is for those who are God's people. Who does this text say has a hard heart? It's not the crowds. It's not the religious leaders. It's the disciples. The disciples are the ones who have hard hearts. The danger of a hard heart is incredibly real for each and every single one of us. Amazement wasn't enough for the disciples in this passage, and a half-hearted lip service or a solely intellectual assent to who Jesus is is not enough for us either. That's not saving faith. Where did the disciples go wrong? Well, the disciples went wrong when they refused to see Jesus for who he truly was. Things went wrong when they were amazed by this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and yet at the same time they didn't reflect and say, just what exactly does that mean about who Jesus 
is. They went wrong when they saw Jesus walking on water and they didn't say, well, what does that say about who Jesus is? They didn't pursue this faith that saw Jesus more and more clearly, but but instead they were simply content with what they had. One theologian words this danger so powerfully, so well. I love the way he says this. He says, discipleship is more endangered by lack of faith and hardness of heart than it is by external dangers. The greatest danger facing us is not, like the disciples, the winds out there. It is not the circumstances that are going on out there. It's instead the hardness of heart within us. The greatest danger is not our circumstances, whatever they may be. It might be the storms of life, but they don't pose the greatest danger to us. It might be the the triumphs of life, but they don't pose the greatest danger to us. The greatest danger to us is a hard heart, an unbelieving heart, a heart that looks at Jesus and says, I've got enough. A heart that looks at Jesus and says, eh, so what? A heart that refuses to see Jesus for who he truly is, as someone who is more glorious, more amazing, more incredible, more beautiful than anything we could possibly imagine. And when our hearts begin to harden, it's because our gaze has slipped off of Jesus and now is focused on other things that we let vie for our affection. You see... That's the key to battling a hard heart. It's simply to do what Jesus' disciples charge, uh, are charged to do here, to see Jesus for who he truly is. I am, Jesus says. This past week, I picked up this book called Competing Spectacles. It just came out. Uh, it's this book that talks about how we live in a culture and in our society that is increasingly dangerous for us because of the, the high media saturation of our age. There are so many things that compete for our gaze. And how often do we cast our gaze to see Jesus as he truly is? How often do we check our phones before our Bibles? How often do we turn the TV on before we spend time with prayer, with, to God in prayer? How often do we forget the way that God has provided for us, how God has been with us, how God has come through for us in the past, in the midst of storms, when we are in the midst of a new storm? We must pursue a clear, unadulterated view of Jesus as, display, as on display in his word. So that's the first implication, this warning against a hard heart for each and every one of us. But there's a second And that is this, this promise of incredible compassion and and incredible love and mercy. You see, Jesus has mercy and compassion and love, and it's not withheld from his disciples, even in the midst of their hardness of heart. The disciples are terrified. The disciples don't understand who Jesus is. They completely miss the point, and yet Jesus still climbs into the boat with them. Jesus still walks with them and loves them. His love and his mercy are great. They're far greater than any hardness of heart. So won't you turn your gaze toward him and behold him as he truly is? This passage ends with Jesus and his disciples getting to the other side of the sea. They reach Gennesaret, and that's when they come out onto the shore, and, and healings continue. It says this, When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. 
And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran around the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. You see, here we see the exact same thing from Jesus. Jesus does what no one else can do. Jesus shows compassion that no one else has shown. Jesus is the God of creation who cares deeply for his people. So won't you gaze at him this morning? Look at him, behold him as he truly is. Jesus, the great I am. Let's pray. God, we do um, ask for forgiveness for the times where we don't cast our gaze upon you, where we don't see you for who you truly are, where we do have hard hearts. Forgive us, Lord, and give us eyes to see. Strengthen us and make us more like you. Give us eyes to see you in all of your beauty, all of your glory, all of your majesty that you, the God of all creation, incredibly still choose to love us. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.